This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. On this episode, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. This is going to be a top three issue for the next generation of Republicans. And that's a fact. If you're not willing to recognize the problem, no one's going to have faith in you as a leader to, to be willing to fix it. I'm David M. Drucker with The Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, a ricochet podcast and a companion to my book published by 12 Books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. You might think of Sununu as the Republican governor of a battleground state that hosts the first in the nation presidential primary, so important to choosing our presidents. And he is. But some of us of a certain age also think of Sununu as the son of former New Hampshire Governor John Sununu, the canny GOP insider who once served as White House Chief of Staff for President George H.W. Bush. I caught up with Sununu in Washington recently while he was in town for a conference hosted by the American Conservation Coalition a conservative group that believes climate change is real and man-made and a problem, but that believes the Democratic Party's approach to addressing the issue is all wrong and counterproductive. So naturally, Sununu and I discussed climate change and what he thinks the Republican Party should do about it. But as is our habit when we get together for an interview from time to time, Sununu and I also touched on a few other issues you might find interesting, including at least one related to former President Donald Trump. After all, This is In Trump's Shadow. And now, Chris Sununu. Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire, thanks for joining me on In Trump's Shadow. Uh, It is great to be here. Well, listen, we've talked. In Washington, my favorite place in the world. You're not lying either. Because I, you know, when I was, well, that's not true. When I was last with the governor, I was in Washington. But the first time I was with you, uh, we hiked Mount Major in New Hampshire, and, and we were surveying all that you governed, and you said, I, I hate this place. I want to go to Washington. That's exactly what I said. Oh, my God. And then you didn't run for Senate, and I knew it was all just to make me get excited that was about it. breaking news. I have to keep the media on their toes. Correct. You know, look, man, I, I, I'm, I love New Hampshire. I'm almost addicted. I mean, I really am. Almost, I wouldn't say to a fault, but probably almost to a fault. But being governor is pretty awesome because my job is to be super selfish yeah. about my state, and I love that. And it's nice if you like where you live. Mm. I like where I live. We have good people. We have we got challenges. We got problems. We got things that we can fix. And I'm gonna. I love the fact that I have the responsibility of trying to find innovative solutions. So that's what being governor is all about. All right, let's uh, dive in here. And you know, when we talk, I mean, we don't really make news. Nobody pays attention. So <laughs> no big deal. The last time we talked, your interview. I think the word is viral. I think it, it went. It went pretty viral. But. And I remember. Um, some people internally said, I mean, is he running for president or something? Like, are you sure you're going to interview him? I said, he's a governor. They can make news. Yeah. Uh, didn't happen, of course, but (laughs) anyway, uh, it's good to talk to you again. I I appreciate you being here. Uh, you are in Washington this time. Last time we talked at the Cato Institute, you got an Mm -hmm. award for fiscal stewardship and, and, you know, all the regulations you slashed and all that kind of stuff. Uh, this is the American Conservation Coalition. It's a group that believes climate change is real, but tries to approach fixing the problem from a conservative point of view. 
uh, because it believes that's the only way you're going to fix the problem. I wanted to ask you, and this is something that comes up politically a lot, because younger voters uh, really believe that climate change is man-made, let alone real, and they want the government, their politicians and representatives, to do something about it. So we've never talked about this issue before, but you know, as we were joking before, uh, for people that don't know, when you were a younger man, and you still look young because you're younger than me, but when you were a younger man, you hiked the Appalachian Trail from... Yeah. Start to finish, so it's like from Maine down. I hiked to, from Maine to Georgia, yeah, about yeah. twenty two hundred miles. Um, and we, uh, when I was covering you uh, last summer, in advance of a Senate race that never happened, um, you allowed me to tag along with you up to the top of Mount Major, and I'm still breathing, so that's good. <laughs> you did great. So you're an outdoors. You're look. A lot of people in New Hampshire are outdoors. If you're an outdoorsy guy, you clearly care about the an environment that is that is in good shape. So. Is climate change man-made? Does the government need to do something about it? Uh, how do you approach this? Yeah, look, there's no doubt that humans have a real impact on, on the climate. There's no doubt that this is a real issue, especially for the next generation of voters and really for the next generation of Republicans as well. And so that's why this group, this the uh, American Conservation Coalition, it's phenomenal. They're laying the groundwork and planting the scenes about how to be smart. Uh, it isn't this, this, we've let the Democrats co-opt an environmental message. And in doing so, they've taken power and done really dumb things. That's why we're paying $5 a, ga- a gallon of gas, right? This is just bad environmental policy gone amok because they uh, drive their policy on kind of political rhetoric, what sounds nice. We'll just kind of do everything because we're going to say no to anything. I think the, the real approach and the real solution isn't just the idea when we talk about a conservative approach to climate change. It isn't the idea that smart, being fiscally smart can work hand in hand with environmental change. It's that fiscal responsibility must work hand in hand with environmental change. And I believe that very strongly. When you're smart fiscally, when you still promote business, when you create a regulatory environment where businesses want to be, your whole economy does well. The government has the funds. They have the the surpluses to make the investments in uh, in infrastructure and research and development. And whether it's solar power in, in Arizona or hydropower in New Hampshire or offshore wind or whatever it might be, these are smart investments to make. But you have to do it all through the lens of the ratepayer. doesn't mean that you say no to every subsidy, of course, um, but you do the smart subsidies for your area and you make sure that those that have to pay those subsidies, which is basically everybody, um, if you're a senior on fixed income, if you're a low-income family, make sure those folks are first at the trough to get the economic benefit, right? So when we talk solar, for example, let's talk rooftop solar on senior living facilities or on low-income housing. That way they're not paying, they get the, we all get the environmental benefit, but they, they have to turn on a light switch as much as anybody else. So every time they do that, they're paying that subsidy. So let's make sure that those that can afford it the least uh, benefit the most. So let's establish a baseline here, which I do not actually to try and trip you up, but just to try and understand because it's such for, you know, for Democrats, it's easy. Climate change is man-made and we're eventually all going to die. And so we need to take Green New Deal, do everything steps. right now. Right. Yeah. But, and, and Republicans are just much more varied on this topic. So... Is climate change, as we think of the term, real? Well, yeah, of course. Is it man-made? Oh, man has a lot of influence on that, sure. Yeah. And if we do nothing other than what we're doing now, does the planet, does our environment face potential 
devastation and destruction and the volcanoes and and and, and, and potentially yeah. irreversible long term I, I look long term that very well could be the case but look the good news is this whether it's real whether we should do anything about it um, we are doing something about it that's the good news right we are transitioning off of fossil fuels but it's a transition it's not an instant point in time it's going to take 40 50 60 years to get where a lot of us want to be as a, as a transition. And you can do that at the right pace with the right investments so you're not driving a cost burden on all of your citizens Is well. it a good idea, though? I mean, sure, obviously, sure. we have a burgeoning electric car industry. It's, it's slowly but surely becoming more affordable. You can now get, like, Ford F-150s that are electric. That's my baseline. Everybody's heard me talk about this. Yeah. But I love the Ford F-150, and if I can get that as an electric car, sure, why not? Yeah. Um, but is this the sort of thing that over time is is necessary in order to protect our environment? Or is it just, it helps. hey, good development? Yeah. yeah, it helps. It's good development. It's not the end-all, be-all. Transitioning off of fossil fuels isn't the only thing that's going to pr- protect this planet longer. What else needs to be done? Look, you have to, get, you have to think broader. You have to think about clean drinking water. You have to cl- think about, you know, I think that there's an, a, a real opportunity to expand these kind of small batch nuclear plants that I think in the next 10 to 15 years are going to start coming online and how are we going to handle that waste. Um, I was an environmental engineer for 12 years. I put 10,000 holes in the ground, uh, mostly at, at army bases, that's in, but chlorinated solvents and soil and groundwater. And I would design the systems and the treatment systems to clean all that up. That was where I came out of MIT doing. I worked on renewable energy. I think you're going to need a lot of smart energy to drive what I think is either desalination or other other ways to, to clean our water. So it, they don't live in silos, right? Getting off fossil fuels isn't just here and that's going to solve everything. Cleaning, uh, you know, getting aggressive with clean, smart drinking water isn't going to solve anything. Uh, making sure that we're, we're, we can have the technologies to help address smarter farming, drought conditions, things of that nature, that's just not going to solve everything. They all have to work in conjunction. And, and again, you don't just have policy and rhetoric without any data behind it, but it sounds politically good, so we'll get elected on that. That's what the Democrats are doing, and the average American is really paying for it now. So we can be smarter. As Republicans especially, we, we use data. We understand transitions. We look at it through the lens of the ratepayer. Um, we understand that you know maybe the solar standards in Arizona shouldn't be the solar standards in New Hampshire, because last time I checked it, it snowed three, four months out of the year in New Hampshire. So maybe offshore wind, that ain't going to work in Kansas, but maybe it's a really smart thing to do down the road if costs can get lowered uh, off, offshore of New Hampshire. And, you know, we're looking at that, not to do it tomorrow, but to do it five, six years down the road when costs come down and technologies get better. Um, so, again, I think you have to look, there are, are policies that can be put into place to be smart about the transition. Uh, the example I gave tonight was I've driven around this country and I've seen solar arrays in the middle of highways, out in the middle of nowhere. Well, do you know the cost it takes to bring that power from that solar array back into the main grid? It is so cost prohibitive to do that. Like where you put the arrays, how you're going to do them, the size of the arrays. We can have giant solar arrays all over the place, but the subsidy is gonna hit low-income families and make all those solar array developers rich um, without, and, and so what are we doing there? Let's make them smaller, maybe even a little more costly, but if they're smaller and more targeted, they can be smarter in terms of, again, reducing that cost to the individual and getting the power to the grid at, at, at a much smarter way. So how it integrates with the, all this integrates with the main grid, it's complex stuff. I get it. But 
we have to really dig into those discussions. I think Republicans are fantastic about getting smart things done. We're just terrible messengers. We're horrible about selling what we've done and, and frankly, taking credit. And I think we deserve a lot of credit for being smart. Do Republicans have trouble on this issue because some Republicans don't just question climate change and what the government's role is, but just say it's a hoax and nothing needs to Yeah, that doesn't help anything. That doesn't, I mean, that's just real old school thinking. It doesn't help anything. And I would say, look at this next generation of the 18 to 40 year old Republicans. This is a big issue for them. This is where and I was going next. Yeah, you, you, look, it. you govern in a competitive state where things go back and forth. How important is it to this category of voter that you, you recognize climate change as a serious issue that the government needs to be involved in in some way? Then you recognize it as a problem, not just an existence, and that the government had that you have a solution to yeah. address it. So this is going to be a top three issue for the next generation of Republicans. Wow. And that's a fact. And so we have to kind of own that. And by owning and saying, look, we recognize the problem, um, we can cast fingers about man-made, not man-made, blame this, blame that. Look, there's a problem. If you're not willing to recognize the problem, no one's going to have faith in you as a leader to, to be willing to fix it and challenge yourself to provide opportunities of solutions. Not that the government is the only answer to this. You need to engage the private sector, right? I sat with a bunch of auto, uh, auto executives about three or four months ago, and they're talking about their transition to electric vehicles. Okay, where are those materials coming from? Where are those mined rare materials coming from? They're a lot of from Brazil, China, you know, and they're being mined in worse environmental conditions, worse humanitarian conditions. We have a lot of the ability to mine a lot of that here in the United States safely, smart. We should be doing that. You know, the, the, the big hypocrisy that everyone saw right through was when Joe Biden said on the first day of the job, we're not going to do the XL pipeline. And by the way, Saudi Arabia, can you keep pumping more? When, we, when they pump more oil out of the Middle East, it's worse for the environment, right? We have the best, smartest technologies. doesn't mean that spills don't happen and accidents don't happen. You have to acknowledge that. But overall, America can pump oil and fossil fuels cleaner and better for the environment than anywhere in the world. So why would we do less and ask other folks to do more? Because, again, this issue of environmentalism is a world issue, right? So if they're hurting the environment overseas, it affects this planet. And so that type of ask backwards hypocrisy the average voter sees right through that the average citizen that cares about this stuff sees right through that and that's why this green new deal nonsense is is falling apart it's just rhetoric it's not smart and you're saying that if republicans want a next generation of republicans that's a big generation they're going to have to treat this as a top three issue i think so yes absolutely okay we're in washington so let's talk a little washington yeah. The United States Supreme Court could any day now overturn Roe versus Wade, sending uh, abortion as an issue back to the states to decide what they want to do with it. If that were to happen, if Roe versus Wade is overturned and federal protections for abortion rights are eliminated, what does access to abortion look like in New Hampshire? Well, nothing really changes. Nothing really changes. So and what is the status quo right, in New Hampshire? Yeah, right so now? right now we have, a, like, I think 44 states, we have a, a ban on uh, late-term abortions in the months 7, 8, and 9, which most everybody agrees with, frankly. They have that in Massachusetts. They have that in liberal states like New York, and we, and we have that in, in New Hampshire as well. Um, the, the law that was passed was a little too restrictive for me. I put some more flexibilities in that because I think you, you had to do that. I don't think it was— What flexibilities did you put in there? They, they put requirements on, on ultrasounds and all the stuff that, that just weren't— logical. It didn't really make any sense. It was incredibly restrictive. And, and that 
We've, that's been proven. You don't need any of that. You know, those types of late procedures are extremely rare anyways, but it's got to have some flexibility in it. So our laws are very similar to, to every other state, and we don't, we, don't, uh, we don't have to do anything else. So if, it were to, if Roe v. Wade were to get overturned, um, you know, we don't, we are, everything stays the status quo in New Hampshire. Other states are different. Other states have triggers. If it gets overturned, then this will happen. And some are more left and some are more uh, kind of conservative. But in New Hampshire, it's, it's the status quo. So in states controlled by Republicans, at least in a few of them, they have passed laws in anticipation. Some of these laws restrict abortion at fertile. Well, one state, Oklahoma, restricts abortion and fertilization. Other states re- restrict it at 15 weeks or at uh, six weeks around a heart. Yeah. I think Georgia, it's called the heartbeat bill. Um, even though New Hampshire is not a red state, uh, we've just been talking about how competitive it is. You do have a Republican legislature right now. Mm-hmm. It, 2022 is shaping up as a Republican wave nationally, which could help protect your Republican legislature. I think it will, yeah. And so what does Governor Sununu do? What do you do, Governor Sununu, if your Republican legislature sends you a bill that restricts abortion beyond what the statutes in yeah, your state Yeah, I'm not looking to make any changes. Now? No, I think where, where we are now is where, where most states are. Um, uh, that's where we should be. To, I think the point you bring up is a really good one in that, you know, the debate is going to be, are we 15 weeks? Are we 20 weeks? Are we like New Hampshire, 24 weeks? It's, it's kind of the spectrum, right? Where in that scale are you? But um, some states will be really, could potentially be really pro-life and they just basically ban it altogether. Some states will be really pro-choice, pro-abortion and just allow it up to birth. And right. I don't agree with that. I don't think most people agree with that. Um, and the rest of us, most of us will kind of be, is it 20 weeks or 24 weeks, somewhere in that spectrum? So really restrictive legislation that would eliminate exceptions for uh, rape, incest. No, I think uh, there should be exceptions. Some states have done yeah, uh, uh, legislation that would uh, go beyond the, the late-term abortion restrictions and move it toward uh, the first trimester would meet your veto pen? Probably, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let, I would say most definitely, actually. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's talk uh, another issue that only insiders in Washington really care about, I think, and that's redistricting. Uh, you got a lot of flack in New Hampshire for vetoing. It's funny. I mean, it's funny to me yeah. because I, I'm from California. We have like 2,000 districts. It's, yeah. Our districts... It's almost as big as your legislature, which is funny because you have like five million people yeah, in your legislature, yeah, and there's only six people that live in New Hampshire. <laughs> um, in California, it's a very you know comparatively with forty million people, it's a forty seat Senate and an eighty seat Assembly. Um, so you were presented, I think, a couple of maps. You can correct me if I'm wrong here. Yeah. You you weren't happy with them. You finally agreed to one. Republicans. Uh, we're really upset about it, but as I'm told by, by your supporters, what you ended up creating were maps that you really believe are better for uh, you. I'm sure, I believe are good for the, your state, but much better for Republicans. So explain yeah. the disagreement. Yeah. the disagreements. The legislature. Yeah. My legislature was was completely, um, I think, blind in that they had this idea that well, we'll just lock one up for Republicans. Um, we have Annie Custer, this Democrat socialist that represents our, our second our second district. She has uh, popularity ratings under, you know, well underwater, right? She, I think 53% in the latest poll said she's got to go. And that's in a Democrat-leaning district. Why would I give her a job for life? Why would we just lock everything up for her for a variety of reasons? By the way, we have a candidate there that is going to win. She is going to, I think we can win both congressional districts. 
So the idea that Republicans, if we just lock one up and that's a good Republican thing to do, it, it actually disenfranchises Republicans in all that those other parts of the state. I want Republicans to step up and know that they can run for office and win, whether it's Congress or the town planner or governor or state rep, whatever it is. And you do that by ensuring some level of competitiveness, even in those parts of the state. Never capitulate. How... To, to give a Democrat a job for life. That is not a Republican but you, ideal. But you could have, just played devil's advocate, yeah. you could have given um, a Republican a job for life and given you have just two seats. I don't think anybody should have a job for life. Well, different story. No, no, but, but, but like if you look at what's going on, and just again, I'm, yeah. I'm playing the role here of devil's advocate. Uh, not really, I'm not picking a side. If you look at what happened in Nevada, what Republicans tell me in Nevada is that they think they're going to sweep Southern Nevada's three uh, House seats because Democrats... Approved new district lines that, in theory, Democrats can win, but they spread around the wealth. So it yeah. sounds like you spread around the wealth, meaning, yeah, you it. know, if Donald Trump runs for president in 2024, gets reelected uh, or gets elected, and then 2026 is, is a total shellacking for Republicans, both of your seats are going to be competitive versus. One being solid R and one being solid D. It's not just about solid R, solid D. So understand this. When you give someone a job for life, I think this is one of the greatest problems in Washington, by the way. There are too many places in this country where the, the Republican is locked up or the Democrat is locked up. And what happens? They only face a threat from their base on a primary because they know they're not going to lose the general. So therefore, they tend to, the, the, the Democrats tend to go even further left, Right. Um, and what happens to constituent service? They're not calling you back. They're not engaging with citizens. They're not doing their job because guess what? We've created a system where they don't have to anymore. And they, they're guaranteed a job for life. That's a, that is the worst thing you can do for democracy. And in a state like New Hampshire, we have the first in the nation primary. I want, again, no matter what your political affiliation, I want everyone to know they can and should run for some type of office. And everyone, if you look someone in the eye and have good constituent services, can win. Look, the gentleman running, uh, George Hansel, he's running uh, in the second CD. He's going to beat Andy Custer. He's a Republican mayor in one of our most liberal cities, Keene, right? And he did it not because he's Republican or Democrat. He's a good conservative Republican. But he, he has great constituent service. And he knows if he stops delivering that constituent service, he's going to lose. So what I have done is made the state much more competitive for Republicans. Uh, the Cook Report, for the first time, has the second CD as a toss-up. We've never had that. It's always been a, a safe Democrat. It's now a toss-up seat because I'm supporting Republicans across the state. I think the legislature just had this their blinders on. They had this idea that, well, we can't win unless we do this. But I think just the opposite. I believe in Republican policies, ideals, values, and connection. And, and I think that can be won all across the state. You think the state will have better representatives if it's not just all about winning the primary? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Constituent service is about holding folks accountable. Folks have to know that if you're not engaging with your constituents, you could lose on either side of the aisle. That's just better for the entire system. Uh, what is New Hampshire going through right now as it relates to skyrocketing inflation, higher interest rates? Um, how has this impacted your recovery from COVID? We talked a lot about this when I was out there last summer because it was still so close to the pandemic. Yeah. really hadn't come out of it. What are the challenges that you are dealing with now? Yeah. So, look, our, our, we have one of the strongest economies in the country. I have, uh, uh, as of this morning, I had only 1,800 people in my entire state on unemployment. I mean, business. 1,800 people? That's it. Out of 1.4 million. 
I mean, so and do you no longer have staffing issues? When, uh, we talked at one point. No, and, workforce is huge. So it's a real problem in that we have so many businesses out of New Jersey, New York, and Massachusetts, Vermont, that are now moving into New Hampshire, expanding in New Hampshire. Vermont, even. If, oh yeah, they're well, coming out of Vermont. Piss them off. Well, they, it, look, <laughs> my job is to make sure that we're always a bit ahead of the pack, and in New England, we are far ahead of the pack. If you want a business or you want to land your family somewhere in the Northeast, New Hampshire is clearly the place to go. Now, nationally, we're now competing to be one of the top two, three, four economies in the country as well. Um, you know, it's funny. We are one of the oldest states in the country. We're old. Our average age is older than, than, than um, Florida. That's not really a problem if you know how to work it, re- make sure you're reskilling and providing you know, opportunities for those retirees to reengage in the workforce. But here's an amazing stat. Last year, we also had the, the biggest increase in birth rate in the country. So young families are moving in as well. Now, be, you know, like everywhere else in the country, we, are, we have our workforce challenges, to be sure. Nurses, teachers, you know, nurses leaving the, 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 the profession, nurses leaving long-term care. Everybody has that. This is a national crisis. But we're always a bit, a, a bit ahead of the pack, especially in New England. And, um, you know, we don't have sales tax. We don't have income tax. We don't have a state tax. I'm getting rid of the interest and dividends tax. It was at 5%. It's going to zero. So you want to hedge off inflation? You make sure individuals don't have to pay these obscene taxes by just moving across one mile across the border from Massachusetts, for example. You don't have your six percent income tax, your six percent sales tax. Um, you don't have, so you, you've just gotten a twelve percent raise, and your cost of living is less. And so it's really a fifteen percent raise that helps offset and hedge against the insane uh, inflation issues that are hitting us nationally. And just because I'm a nerd, how, do, how does your state uh, earn revenue? Who needs revenue? I'm just the government. <laughs> no, so we uh, we have a, a business profits tax, but the the most of our taxes are local. So we have higher property tax than, than normal. Okay. But the, the issue there is uh, it, property tax stinks. And when we have extra money, we send cash back to cities and towns to offset those costs. But because of our town meeting process, how your property taxes get spent in your schools, for which roads and bridges... Uh, in your community, you have a huge say as an individual. So while we have higher than normal property tax, it allows the individual to have so much say in how their tax dollars are being spent and what's happening in their schools and what's happening in their town. And people in New Hampshire get really engaged in that process. That's why we have the highest voter voter turnout every year. That's why we have the first in the nation primary. Folks are engaged from a very local level all the way up, and they take a huge responsibility in the power of leadership and government. It's not a career. It's how we give back of our time. Um, and, and I think, again, that's just another reason how we've been able to separate ourselves. We're going to have inflation and high gas prices like everybody else for, for quite a while. But I think we're doing the right thing to hedge against that stuff to make sure that we, you know, people have a little more financial flexibility in New Hampshire than, than everywhere else. You're running for re-election. Um, and just to explain for the audience, uh, you have two-year terms. Yeah, we're the only ones in the country with two-year terms. You in Vermont, correct? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you are... I can remember. So you're running for your fourth term, but it's it's really what you would be heading into if in, a, in another state would be the last two years of, of an eight-year, two-year yeah. deal, right? So your, your fourth race for governor. Um, you know what I've noticed, and, and I, I threw this out there so you can correct me, but... Um, I take a look at Governor Greg Abbott in Texas, and I'm not trying to get you in trouble with your colleagues, although I'd be happy to do hey, so. Greg's a good guy. Governor Greg Abbott in Texas, Governor Ron DeSantis <laughs> in Florida, Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia, and some other Republican governors have been signing bills uh, restricting abortion rights, anticipating Roe versus Wade, um, um, increasing uh, 
Second Amendment rights, uh, yeah. making it easier, for instance, to conceal carry uh, firearms. Um, they have been signing legislation that targets so-called big tech, meaning you know the big social media platforms, mm. even though it's constitutionally questionable. Uh, and they've been also uh, passing legislation that restricts critical race theory being taught in public schools, that restricts mm. how you can talk about uh, homosexuality and transgender issues in public schools. And I, when we talk about this, this and I've interviewed you a couple of times, although I know your press in New Hampshire gets more access to you than I do, as it should be, but we've talked a couple of times. This never comes up when we talk. It's just nothing that you bring up. And I haven't seen a headline, Governor Sununu signs X in this regard. Am I missing no, stuff I mean, that well, you've there, done? There's a lot of different issues there. All right. right. So, um, you know, we, as a state, our citizens, we're very pro-Second Amendment, and, we're, and we take that um, very responsibly, right? We are ranked as one of the safest states with public safety. But unfortunately, we know that these school shootings could happen anywhere. Like, no one is immune from it. So we do all these other things to really make sure we're investing in hardening our schools and training for personnel. And, you know, unlike these liberal states that want to get rid of resource officers and defund the police, we support law enforcement and we support security in our schools. And we want to make sure that our kids are safe. I got two teenagers in high school. I got a nine-year-old. I'm a dad. Right. So I'm as concerned as anybody when my kids go off to school. Um, I'm living it like every other parent is. And I'm very proud to say I think we've done a lot of the right things in terms of uh, really working with schools at a local level to understand their opportunities and their resources and how that can be done. And, you know, everything from social emotional learning programs and social wellness programs, mental health for kids. All of this stuff is part of of our plan because there is no single issue that's going to prevent that. And, and no one is immune, so we need to really do what we can on the prevention side. You know, you know when it comes to the stuff on critical race theory and all that, look, we, we passed a law very simply that says you will not discriminate against children in a classroom, period, end of story. It's just that simple. And the fact that we, we're at a, a state in our country where we have to pass laws that reaffirm what I believe is, it should be obvious, but we feel very strongly about that, right? You, you can't tell, um, you know, we, if teachers can't discriminate against Arab kids because of terrorism or, or um, African-American kids or white kids or whatever it is. I don't care. Don't discriminate against kids, right? Uh, that's just It's just fundamentally wrong. So we passed a law that reaffirmed that and made sure that's not going to happen in our classroom. So, you know, it's uh, everyone has their uh, different issues and different things they're going after. Um, you know, if, if a business disagrees with me politically, look, that's who cares? That's their business. That's their private business. I, I might not like what somebody says. I might not like the politics of a certain business. But I'm from the live for your die state. And you do you. My job is to create opportunity for your business. And just because you disagree with me doesn't mean we're going to penalize your business or take away your rights as an individual or an individual business. That's, 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 not, uh, that's not very Republican, right? It's not very conservative, not very American, frankly. So it's okay to have the debate and have, and, and have the discussion. So, you know, I don't know if, there's, I don't know if that answers you're, your question. You're not, I, look, I... I can tell you have opinions, but it doesn't seem like you're driven by a lot of these cultural issues that Look, I believe in seem good to be animating the Republican yeah. Party today. Well, it animates everybody on both sides, right? I mean, everyone seems to in, in America seems to be self-righteous about their political, social, and cultural position. And everyone has the right to be. But, you know, it's, it, it builds angst and anger and divide. Um, I believe in, as a governor, you know what my job is? To be a good manager. And I got 1.4 million people. I have to... I, I have to manage their dollars. And, you know, there's no greater responsibility for an elected official, whether you're on the planning board or your governor or your president, than managing other people's money. So I have to balance a budget every year. I, I, and by doing that and being smart 
and drive, driving a very efficient, smart government. I have extra money left over and, and being pro-business, so businesses come in. We cut taxes, but we our revenue is skyrocketing because so many more businesses are coming in. So I can keep cutting taxes and I actually get more revenue. That helps fund our very innovative way of attacking the opioid crisis or mental health issues. The mission of government isn't to raise money. Some people, like Democrats believe that. The mission of government is to fulfill on your promise of opportunity for opioids and recovery and treatment programs if you or your kids or your employees you know, uh, end up on that path. My job is to create doors of opportunity, not just solve your problem. So that's the kind of approach I take. I, I have my own beliefs and thoughts on social issues, and, and that's fine, but that's not why I'm in the business. I'm in the business for good management, and I think that's what this country needs. Okay, well, before I let you go, because this is in Trump's shadow, I need to ask... One Trump-related question. Oh, oh, the name of your show. It's the yes, it's the and the name of my book. Uh, But it's it's a law I passed. It's my podcast, and I get to do what I want. It's like my own. (laughs) It's like I'm governor of the podcast. You are king of the castle. I'm governor of the podcast. Uh, You know, we saw President Trump uh, this spring endorse against Brian Kemp, against Brad Little, governor of Idaho, Mm -hmm. against. Uh, the candidate who won an open gubernatorial nomination, gubernatorial primary in Nebraska. Um, He also saved himself from losing in Alabama by yanking his endorsement of Mo Brooks, who's now in a Senate runoff with Katie Britt, and Katie Britt will probably win that. Uh, What do you think? Now, look, his record is still great. He endorses all over the place, and his his candidate won in Pennsylvania, uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz. Uh, Well, picking winners isn't making winners. That's a difference. There's a difference there, right? That, very true. Yeah. What do you think we've learned about where President Trump is in the Republican Party in terms of his power and influence by what we have seen in primaries yeah. so far? Well, look, I think he has as much influence as any former president uh, d- does or should. Um, you know, he's he's the you know the titular head of the party you know, when he was president. Um, he has a lot of influence with voters. He, uh, I think, you know, let's look at Dr. Oz for example. So in that race, I, I'm doing these numbers off the top of my head. You know, I think Oz was at like 20% and he gets Trump's endorsement and he goes to 30% and he wins. So of the 90, 90% of the kind of, the, I'd call it the hardcore, or the, you know, the real voter base of the Republican Party that engages in primaries, 90% of that said, well, okay, the president's endorsing, but, you know, that's not where we're going. 10% were moved, but that means 90% weren't. And that's about what you'd expect from a former president. So, and that, it, when you have a lot of folks in a primary, can be enough to get people over the line. And so his endorsement can, can mean something, depending on the race and, and the candidacy. It can really mean a lot to, to helping people get over the line. But not always. Everyone is different. I think the media tends to look at, well, is he influential or not? Well, he's the former president. Of course he's influential. As he, is, he should be expected to be. Is it a make or break deal? Well, no, no, not at all. I think voters want to vote for their candidate. They appreciate him. They appreciate... Um, I think, you know, what he brings to the table. But at the end of the day, voters vote for who really they want. Endorsements just from anybody are only going to have so much. But his is as much as any former president, as, as is expected. Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire, thanks so much for joining thank us you, on Trump Shadow. It's good to see you. This is fun. Thank you. Thank you. Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP, is now available for purchase wherever books are sold. And every day, you can find my work online at www.WashingtonExaminer.com. We'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.